0: Welcome (laughs) everyone, thanks for uh, inviting me to to come, it's uh, not my first time in this center, it's my first time in this building, (laughs) where it's currently at, but I went to one of the other uh, babies of Tsittagarbha Center in one of the other buildings, I guess, maybe I was trying to think 2010 or 2011 uh, for a puja one time, when I was a monk, so maybe I met some of you during that time. (laughs) Um, so we'll do a few preliminary, um, chants to prepare kind of our minds for the talk. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to kind of do something a little different tonight. Um, just in the spirit of Taos, to me, I, I lived in Crestone for seven years, um, when I was a monastic and before that three years at, um, uh, Land of Kamabiding, which is one of, uh, uh, Lama Zopa Remche's retreat centers. And, uh. And just spending time in Taos this time, you know, really to me this this very much feels like a place of the heart. And one way I kind of uh, uh, understand Buddhism for myself, in the sense of you know, we can read texts, we can study with great teachers, we can contemplate on those teachings, basically what apply what's called the three wisdoms, we can meditate on those teachings, and in essence, uh, when we're Connecting with an understanding, it's sort of food for the head to then bring into the meditation, which is heart and food for the heart, right? And so Taos being a heart place, (laughs) I kind of decided maybe we'll focus a little bit more on on experiential teachings tonight. Of course, we need a little bit of head, you know, a little bit of thought process, contemplation for where we're going to move the heart. That's really important in Buddhism as well, right? So the first wisdom we we use is, is the wisdom of listening. It's the wisdom of just trying to take in with a fresh lens without an overlay of our biases or our concepts as much as possible, what the Dharma might be. And then we contemplate on that. And that's when we can start to apply some techniques of first just contemplating without our own bias, just trying to understand what is this saying? And then we rub, check the goal of the Dharma, and we contemplate it more seriously against our doubts, against our skepticisms, against other things we may believe. And we start to work with it that way. Then when that, we have some sense of that, then we can move into the heart by putting that into practice, by uh, bringing it into meditation, right? To actually have some experience develop, which from a larger perspective in Buddhism, I would say, is moving into the realm of the non conceptual. It's not necessarily completely non conceptual, but it's moving in that realm. So, in the spirit of that, we have to talk a little bit about the view and sort of frame that a little bit out. And tonight, I thought um, I'd talk more like a general view of Buddha Dharma. We can talk about it uh, in many different ways, but often I haven't been here before, so as a teacher, so I like to. You know, just get to know each other. It's like a first date. You know, you don't go in teaching. You know, Nagarjuna on the first date. You got to warm up to that, right? <laughs> so we got to do a little bit of warm up. Um, and to me, you know, when 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 we were talking about what to do tonight, um, I have this talk I call Essential Dharma, which basically means I could just show up and say whatever. I want. <laughs> so I like it because I don't have to plan so much, and it can be more spontaneous. But actually, I was thinking about it today, and. Um, uh, uh, really I think in my life was quite precious. In, uh, the, most, the most precious thing to me personally is the Buddha Dharma, is having a sense of that in my life, of a connection to my teachers, a connection to lineage, a connection to what the Buddha taught, and that being a constant reference point for me to work through my experience in life and to develop a sense of what freedom might look like from that perspective. And so I was thinking about... Um, What's essential to that? And again, there's a lot of different opinions on what's essential to that. I think there's some scriptural things that we could just lay out that some of you already know. But we can repeat. And then we can get into sort of more some experiential essential maybe. So that's my idea. We'll see if that actually happens. But <laughs> that's kind of my feeling. So with that said, um, we'll do some preliminary chants. Uh, take, we'll take refuge. And then we'll... we'll um, We'll chant a short mandala offering and then the request to turn the wheel of dharma. And so, hmm, what I'd like to do is um, we'll recite it first in English together. And then I'm going to offer a guided meditation on each of these, short one. Then we'll recite it in Tibetan to connect to the blessing of the lineage through the language. And I think we'll do that. That's my feeling tonight. <laughs> So I'm on page 98. Is that where you, you the prayers before teachings? You all usually go there? Yeah. So we'll recite it in English once together, and then we'll go from there. I go for refuge in Telem, enlightened, to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Supreme Assembly. By the merit I create through listening to the Dharma, may I become a Buddha in order to benefit all sentient beings. So just for a moment, you can close your eyes, you can leave them open, whatever feels comfortable. Just take a moment in a flash, just to remember the Buddha. You can visualize him in the space in front of you. You can evoke him in your heart. Or you can just invoke the energy of one of your teachers or the energy of what Buddhist enlightenment means to you. What that idea of freedom means. (coughs) And the Buddha is representing it here. If we want to imagine him in our mind's eye, he's wrapped in saffron robes like a monk, holds a begging bowl, His right hand is touching the earth, and the earth touching mudra, which we're going to talk about more tonight. And I want you to come into your body. Feel your feet on the ground. Feel the seat below you as you do this. So we're inviting the Buddha as a source of what's our own potential as a source of reflection and a mirror for our own buddha nature and as a figure of refuge representing the dharma representing the buddha the possibility for enlightenment and the supreme assembly or the sangha of those who have transcended their own suffering and work for the benefit of others so we can imagine this all embodied in the buddha and, as you come into the body more in this, just maybe wiggling your toes, touching the ground, feeling the seat below you. See if you can sense out into the space in front of you for a moment. And for some of us, this is going to be more readily available and for some of us, this might be more challenging. So wherever you're at, just try it. There's no right or wrong, there's no perfect. There's just putting effort. And as you extend your body into the space in front of you, you extend it to the sides and also the back. So you're starting to develop a 360 degree perspective, also above and below, of the space around you. And so in the space in front of you, as you imagine the Buddha, you also feel the Buddha. Maybe he's five to six feet in front of you. If you'd like to make it more elaborate, he sits on a lion throne, on a lotus and moon. And his body shines bright with the marks and signs of an enlightened being. And as we sit in this energy, we're also using it as a mirror, reminding ourselves of our own potential. So, this doesn't become a theistic practice. The Buddha here is in our mind's eye, mirroring our own very potential for awakening. At first, it may seem so foreign, it may seem so out of possibility for us. I just want you to reflect on that for a moment. And you can also reflect on the Buddhist qualities. Being free of fear, being free of suffering, having all the potential to benefit others in, in vast amounts of ways. Having what we call the two types of omniscience, if you know what those are. And surrounding you spatially to your sides, to the back of you are all sentient beings. You can visualize your close family and friends just directly around you. Behind you are more distant people in your life and then surrounding them are more and more sentient beings, vast as space, just imagining they fill as far as you can see beyond what you can see in human form. And as you connect into the energy of refuge, we're simply attuning the mind to a shelter, a place where we recognize safety. So the Dharma is actually the true refuge in that it helps us to uncover our Buddha nature. And that's being represented in the Buddha here. The Buddha being a figure of a human being who did it, who actually brought about an awakened state free from suffering, free from constructs. So just take a moment to appreciate that in whatever way feels relatable to you right now. For me, refuge is not a practice of worship, it's a practice of appreciation. And it's a practice of slowly becoming more sober to where I may actually find happiness versus what is going to lead to suffering. So just let your mind rest there for a moment. If you've been thinking about it a lot in the last minute or two, drop the thinking and just rest in the heart. You can just feel the Buddha's power and energy in front of you as a reflection of your own potential. And with that, we're gonna recite in Tibetan, the verse of refuge. So see if you can stay with that feeling as
1: you recite the words. SANGYET SHU DANG SUGYET SHU NAM DANG na JAN CHU BAR DU DANG NI KIABSU CHI DAGYET SHU NING NAM GI TRU LA PEN SHIR So again, in
0: English, now connecting the heart to the meaning. I go for refuge until I am enlightened to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Supreme Assembly. By the merits I create through listening to the Dharma, may I become a Buddha in order to benefit all sentient beings. So with this, we just tune in for a moment to the sentient beings surrounding us. This last part of our refuge in bodhicitta prayer. Just attuning the mind to an appreciation, not just for the Buddha in front of us, but an appreciation for other sentient beings. Remembering the ups and downs that we experience in our life, the ups and downs that others experience, Really the nature of what it means to circle from a Buddhist perspective, to circle in elements of confusion just not knowing our nature not knowing what is the true cause of happiness and what's the true cause of suffering the great uh, Master Padampa Sange said sentient beings run towards suffering and run away from happiness and this is really sums up the state of confusion. So can you allow your heart to open up with a sense of compassion and to let that compassion feed into a sense of bodhicitta, if you know what that is? Here, bodhi meaning awakened and citta meaning heart-mind. And we're simply just tuning into or tuning to a heart-mind that wishes to see ourselves and others free and we wish to take on that responsibility. So just let your awareness settle into the body and attune to that for a moment. You can think it out a little bit, but at some point I want you to drop the thinking into the body. Don't worry if you got the right thing or not. Just try to feel. Bodhicitta has this quality of courage and also bittersweetness the sweetness of the possibility of awakening and our getting to know that and embody that more and more and the bitterness of seeing the vastness of samsara and its suffering nature. But this bitterness doesn't prevent us from doing our work. It actually only inspires us further. So now we're going to imagine a mandala offering, and here you can just imagine everything in the world that's beautiful to you, everything that you appreciate, everything that you treasure. You can imagine this in the form of something beautiful, like a beautiful mountain of flowers, a beautiful stream, wealth, delicious food, Or, if you'd like to form the traditional mandala, you can just think of the entire universe stacked around a golden Mount Maru, all the different god realms, all of the realms of samsara, and we're imagining them as a pure offering. We're tuning into our appreciation, we're tuning into our sense of also letting go. All the beauty that we come into contact with, Offering it up, letting it go, sharing it. <clears throat> and we imagine sharing this first with the Buddha, all enlightened beings, and then sharing this with sentient beings. And so we could chant while well, we imagine this on page 97, just the page before it. On the bottom in English. This ground, anointed with perfume, strewn with flowers, adorned with Mount Meru, four continents, the sun and the moon. I imagine this as a Buddha field and offer it. May all beings enjoy this perfect realm. So from your heart, just imagine offering this to the Buddha. He accepts it. It fills him with Bliss, not because he needs it, but, but but because he rejoices at our own generosity. Same as you offer this to sentient beings, whatever they need. You imagine that fills them up with joy. And really working with this second immeasurable of sending them and offering them happiness free from the causes of suffering, or offering them happiness and its causes. And just feel what that's like to let go of that burden of needing to hold on to things, of needing to hoard them, of needing to make a distinction between mine and someone else's. And with the Buddha still in front of us, we're going to now open our mind toward the Dharma so when we request the teaching actually the essence of it is not just requesting the teacher in the room but it's requesting all of the Buddhas all of the Dharma to turn within our life that we can be on a walk and suddenly we have an insight into something we've been studying or we're having a really hard day and we just hear something in a grocery line that completely shifts our mood This is what we're requesting, not just formal Dharma. We're requesting that the Dharma be turned in our mind as much as possible until we attain awakening, until our mind becomes Dharma. So, with that, we'll recite the English uh, on page 98. And here we're requesting the Buddha specifically in front of us. holy and perfect pure lama from the clouds of compassion that form in the skies of your dharmakaya wisdom please release a rain of vast and profound dharma precisely in accordance with the needs of those to be trained so make that a really genuine request from your heart. And this could be something even just really simple, something you're having difficulty with right now and you want some insight in your life. You want a little bit more of a shift, a piece of wisdom to help you work with it, all the way up to the Buddhist path as a whole and how that can unfold for us over a lifetime, over more than one lifetime. So again, remembering here, we're actually not requesting something we don't have a connection to, we do. We have Buddha nature. We have the potential for awakening. So we're simply requesting an activation of that. Some help, some guidance. And we're requesting to the Buddha in front of us and he feels extremely happy. We can imagine he smiles, not because he has something special to say or not because he's really eager (laughs) to tell us what we need. It's because he knows just through our heart opening to the Dharma, it's only a matter of time before we attain awakening. So being open is really one of the key points to Dharma study and practice.
1: Oh, man. And so, with that, the Buddha,
0: extremely pleased, dissolves into light. Just imagine this light merging with your body and mind. Just rest in that inseparability that now the Buddha is not separate, your mind and the Buddha's mind are mingling. And just simply rest in that for a moment without concept, just resting. Don't proliferate a story about that, just feel. So, you guys usually take a break around set, like hour? Yeah. yeah okay. Good. <laughs> Sometimes I do practices like that. Uh, more, and more these days, my practice is more like that. It's sort of like how to, hmm. of course, we need some backup. We need some view. And I'm going to talk about view a little bit tonight. View just means like where are we going? And so we have some information like where do I want to go? Wh- what is this? What am I doing, right? Otherwise it can be quite vague. But once we get a little bit of that, or maybe a lot of that, <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, I think this is really important, to make sure we're not cutting it off from experience. So there's J. Uh, Rinpoche Lama Kappa in his uh, middle length lamrim. He says, uh, you know, it's a little bit silly to, to race a horse in a track that you're not gonna like you practice racing a horse in in a track you're not gonna race it on he said that's kind of silly you have to practice racing the horse on the same track that you're gonna race it right so you 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 dig in you know from a neuroscience perspective we're creating those grooves and we're deepening those positive grooves in the in our cognition and brain so i always thought of this as uh uh you know we're, we're constantly Reworking and working over what we learn, and we're bringing that into our heart. We're bringing that into our experience. I don't know. I think just a bunch of knowledge is useful, uh, but if we're not integrating it into experience, it's not that useful. It just sort of makes it can make for a uh, Tibetans have a, a saying, it can make for like a hard leather pouch. Because <laughs> they put, I guess, you know, they put butter in their, you know, in, in old Tibet in the pouch and then you know, hold it, and at a certain point, if you didn't cure it correctly, it becomes hard, right? So I don't know about you, but I've struggled with this throughout my dharma practice, because I feel, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I feel um, we have a very large emphasis on on sort of cognitive uh, uh, knowledge being from here up, right? (laughs) And sort of being something where you know it when you can speak about it really eloquently and, you know, backwards and forwards but we could know it without the really knowing it right we can know it without the experience developing so i like this idea of running on a track on the same track in the sense that even if we don't know that much we practice what we know and practice means not just thinking about it all the time trying to bring it into the heart like we just did right which could be something really simple just sitting with a sense of appreciation sitting with a sense of offering mandala is such a beautiful practice because actually what we're doing is we're letting go so every time we let go, a little bit of our ego clinging also releases. And from a Buddhist perspective, if we want to centralize the whole thing, <laughs> ego clinging is what is the cause of suffering, right? And we can frame that many different ways. Uh, sort of misperception, maripa in Tibetan, we call it, uh, avidya in Sanskrit, just this kind of not knowing, right? So I like this idea of whatever little practice I'm doing, uh, or whatever I'm studying or, or thinking about or contemplating put it into practice right away I remember one time I was I was uh, when I first became a monk um, I really wanted to go to um, the monastery in India like a uh, and you know become a geshe and do all these things which is a really wonderful thing to do you can benefit a lot of beings that way and um, welcome <laughs> and uh and then I didn't do that <laughs> I went into retreat uh, when I first came along it was at Lama Zopa Mche's advice but Lama Zopa once I asked him because I was just you know I really you know we, we, we prize um, when you really know the path quite well you can actually work a lot of the time on your own without needing you know to always ask or figure it out because the, the Dharma becomes sort of in your mind and becomes one of your teachers and that's one of the the real uh, key components of, of doing some study and having a good understanding otherwise we're confused a lot of the time and then we always have to ask someone and that's not a bad thing it's just sometimes we, we don't have access to people or, or really you know you do here you have geshe comes and Don and so I think you do here but some people don't, right? So um, I asked Lama Zopa because I was kind of like scared I was like uh, what so uh, What should I do? Like I I don't know enough. You know, there's so much to know. There's so much to study. There's so much to understand. And he said, he said the point is whatever you know, whether you know a little bit or whether you know a lot, is to put it into practice. That's the point. And so that always kind of this idea or these three wisdoms of listening, like we're listening now. You know, and again, I didn't say this, but I'll say it now. Listening really the, the uh, usually they talk about these three vessels, right? You all have heard this when you're studying and teaching, of not being an upturned vessel, a dirty vessel, or a vessel with holes in it. I am usually guilty of the third one. <laughs> um, but what it really means is like, I think for us a lot of the times culturally, it means don't try to filter the teaching through your bias. Just try to take it in really raw, as raw as possible, right? Even as raw as like, there's this Tibetan saying of like, Like a child looking at a painting for the first time. They don't have a lot of concepts about it. They just, whoa, that's interesting, right? So so this really helps because then when we start to contemplate it, that's when we work with that raw material. We're trying, you know, we're we're actually, there's some friction. We're rubbing up against something that may not fit with our current belief systems or we may not understand it fully. And so that's the contemplation part. And then by the time we put it in meditation, that's when we're bringing it into the heart, right? Into experience. But what I'm saying is like this horse running, we try to do th- all three. So anything I say tonight, the first part is just us kind of discussing here and you know, coming together to, to talk about these things. And so try to leave the mind unbiased. Then you take it home, you contemplate, then you meditate on it, right? And even if it's just one little thing you got out of it, that's incredibly precious. I I know there's a famous quote, but I forget it now. It's something like, you know, we have like an abundance of information these days, but very little wisdom. And Buddhism has the remedy to that. It has the remedy if we work with it. We work with these three wisdoms, listening, contemplating, and meditating. And we don't wait to meditate until we've listened to everything. That doesn't work. I tried it. it. It works, I think, in old Tibet. Like some styles of, of academic learning in the monasteries, they might do it that way. I don't think it works for us so much as modern people. We just don't have time. You know, we need to integrate what the get a little piece, we contemplate it, and we integrate it right away. It's really important. So this piece on integration, I'm going to talk more about that because I think this is a really confusing one. I don't know. I'd like to hear from you all, maybe in Q and A. But um, for me, this has been a tough one because. Hmm. What happens when we are uh, a top-down culture? Now, again, I don't think any of you are. I'm talking about you know people outside, right? <laughs> Only outside of this room. But uh, <laughs> you know, we, we could probably all agree we're generally a top-down culture. Maybe not everywhere in the United States, but but I think it's just become part of the dominant education, dominant culture. So, um, what? How does this affect experience, right? When we're only working with a top down approach, what's happening? What's missing? So, I just want to leave that as an open question now, and then we'll, we'll, we'll work through it in a moment. So, anyways, getting our topic tonight. <laughs> uh, I mean, that is part of the topic. Um, what I wanted to work with was really this, this uh, uh, view, meditation, and conduct. So, I, I don't know, some of you may, may not be used to this framing of the Buddha Dharma. Um, the Guluk tradition doesn't actually they do use that framing but it's not as explicit sometimes but it's just a general framing of understanding um, what we're what we want to do where we're aiming what sort of trajectory or travel or path we're going to go on getting used to that and then all of the components of bringing that getting used to into our lifestyle through conduct right and so I like this framing because it kind of uh, simplifies the path. And again, every, each text can have its own view, meditation, conduct. So it can be also complex. I'm not going to present it that way tonight. Each view, like if we look at, you know, Tibetan Buddhism is really a, it's a three-yana approach to the Buddha Dharma. For some of you who don't know that, uh, what that means, yana means a vehicle. It's like a, what, what gets us to our destination. And uh, the three yanas that it integrates are, are, you know, the the Shravakhyana or Hinayana, uh, the foundational vehicle, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana. And these are more, they're not steps as much as integratable. So when someone's primarily working on the Vajrayana, they're also working on their Hinayana conduct, and they're also working on that view. But each one has its distinct view. But I'm not going to present them just just because of time tonight. But I just want to point that out. But in general with Buddhism, we could talk about... a larger view meditation and conduct, and I like to talk about that in relation to the Buddha's life story, and especially this famous moment uh, when he you know became awakened under the Bodhi tree and you know touched the earth and the earth shook to me, this is a uh, hmm. it really helps me to understand what we're not we need some we need some top, we need some understanding, but the Buddha just simply touching his hand to the earth and the earth shaking this is a big teaching in that right? It's a big teaching because he didn't do it through words and actually what he said directly after that when the god Brahma came to say hey you got to do something man you can't just sit here and meditate under a tree right? Uh, He also said something that he did say some words but he was it was also kind of a a a no and in that no there's a big teaching so I want to talk about that But you all know, everybody knows the Buddhist life story, more or less? Yeah? Anybody not know it? (laughs) No? Or you don't want to say you don't know it? It's okay. (laughs) So basically, we have a young man, right, uh, who took the aspect of of, uh, being confused, essentially, you know, showing an aspect of not being, something's wrong. He knew there was something more to life. He knew there was more meaning than just enjoying, you know, his economic favor, enjoying all the, you know pleasures that could offer him. Um and he knew that and there was something and and I don't think, you know, just as a story. I view the Buddha's life story by the way as um sure, we, I'm sure maybe it could be literal. I don't view it as that and I don't think that's a problem. I think this is kind of again an element of top-down approach to the world where we, we, we get literal too much. We lose myth as a form of myth, not meaning it didn't happen, right? But myth meaning it became bigger than what it was. And that's fine. Uh, a lot of, I mean, you all probably know living in Taos, but indigenous communities relate to the world this way. They don't relate in, in literalisms often. And I find this to be a much more heartfelt way of relating to the world. It's something I'm trying to get back. Now, it may not make a great, you know, toilet that can flush, you know, a million times. My teacher, Soniram always says if you can just take German head and Nepali heart and put them together, you'd have, like, the perfect culture. Because Nepal, he, he says, uh, no problem is the problem. So, <laughs> so, things don't work so well, like, as the United States, but they also are, are a little bit more emotionally okay. I mean, that's changing now, but in general. where Everything works, but then, everything works, then we're, we're left kind of still Oh, what do I do now? Right? And then we get into trouble. (laughs) Right? At least I do. (laughs) So this kind of fundamental uh, uh, ground of not being settled, I think the Buddha just experienced that. That's kind of our fundamental human condition if we want to simplify it. You know, we we just deal with hope and fear. We deal with, you know, something goes right and then there's the fear of that going wrong. (laughs) Something's going wrong and then we're hoping for something to go right. And hope maybe is not the best word. I like to use the word expectation now because there's also a positive hope. there's a constructive hope. but when hope is expectation, it creates a lot of pain, right at least it does for me. So I think the Buddha's experienced this within the you know the maybe myth is a strong word, but now you know what I mean by myth. I don't mean it didn't happen. I just mean it became bigger, right so within within the myth of the Buddha's life, um, this is what's This is how it's being represented to us. We're not unlike the Buddha, right? We all have our stories of going through life and facing aversion, facing craving, you know, facing where just something doesn't feel right, yeah? We're trying to find well-being, we're trying to find happiness and we think we got it and then something shifts. And of course, this is fundamental to the first noble truth of dukkha that the Buddha eventually taught, but it's really embodied in his life story. So as we know, he kind of went through seeing these four great rivers of birth, old age, sickness, and death, uh, you know, where his father didn't want him to see that, but he did. And this triggered a, a, a past, what we call bhakchak in Tibetan, or an imprint, right, a karmic imprint or some kind of merit for him to then want to seek the sannyasin lifestyle or a lifestyle of a, a mendicant, which he did. He left the palace, right? And then he also found out, okay, this is an extreme as well. <laughs> you know, it wasn't it wasn't the exactly the right hit, working with uh, uh, more extreme yogic practices, and so he went to sit alone under a bodhi tree, as the story goes, and look at his mind, right? And so, um, upon you know all all of, when, of what went forth and all of the battles he had to go through with Mara, which is his own mind, right? Mara being an expression of uh, uh, the last vicissitudes of confusion essentially right and we have mara taking different forms and for me it's the same you know sometimes mara takes the form of a beautiful sky (laughs) that i get to attach to or mara takes the form of someone flipping me off on you know in downtown manhattan or whatever right that doesn't really happen that much these days but maybe it's like a a biker yeah a bike going by and getting upset because i'm in the bike lane (laughs) so um you know, we all have our maras that we work through. And the Buddha essentially saw through to the essence of what these maras were, which were his mind. There was no external mara. It was his mind. So, in essence, this is our job as well. But anyways, so the Buddha, as we know, uh, became awakened in, in this last part of the morning, right? Right when, before the sun comes up. And, uh, and he touched the earth, and the earth shook, like I said. And to me, this is like... Um, Mm. It's not only a, a precious thing for me personally these days to reflect on this, because it, it brings me back to body. It brings me back to also this notion that awakening is not separate from appearance. It's not separate from what exists around us. Mm. And it's also a very kind of embodied thing. I mean, it feels good to touch the earth, right? What is it, you know, when you touch the earth, it feels kind of home. For me, at least, it feels like that. Yeah, and so, and the home responded to him, apparently (laughs) in the myth. Right? It wasn't just "Hey, I'm home." The home responded because the home knew uh, what this meant, right? And that this was this awakening of the Buddha was um, something also way beyond any kind of idea or concept or, or any way we can put it into words. We try in Buddhism, you know, we frame it all in these ways. Let's be honest. You cannot describe that. It's beyond description. Yeah? So, and we can, again, we can point to it. But that's about it. Um, but w- until we know it, we won't know. It. So, I find this incredibly powerful as a way to again, remember what we're doing with our path. Shifting the experience. We're, we're, we're essentially trying to bring what we're doing into more and more of these earth-touching experiences. So the Buddha had this major one can all, we also have lots of minor ones all the time, right? Something shifts. We've been going through a hard time and suddenly little, something, something small shifts and, whew, oh, what was that, right? And as a Buddhist, those are the opportunities to notice. As a sentient being, which I like this term, in Tibetan, it means like a, a mover. That's, that's literally what sentient being means in a, in a someone who moves. <laughs> so what does a mover do with that? They think, oh, oh, oh wow, relief. And then they think, and then we hold on to that relief and then it changes, right? So as a Buddhist, part of our job is to let that kind of resounding shift last as long as possible. So we're going to talk about that a little bit too after the break, probably, if I remember it. (laughs) So anyways, after this experience of the Buddha touching the earth, earth shook, uh, uh, to me, just the. I'm still trying to understand the profundity of that to be honest, I don't think, I don't know, there's something about that that really hits me these days. But anyways, after that, uh, like I said, the Buddha uh, was approached by uh, the great Brahma, you know, which again is a, is a sign of, of what this really means to attain awakening, what this, the power of this actually is. Because Brahma is this big, big deal guy, you know. It's like the president of, I don't know these days, but the president of the United States kind of coming and, you know, telling you, wow, and now I come to my home and do this, right? So anyways, um, the as we know, for some of you who knows the story, Brahma asked him to, to teach. He said, you know, now can you come help? Can you do something? And uh, there's different translations of this, but this is the one I, I tend to, to use and like. Um, So what the Buddha said was profound, peaceful, beyond constructs, luminous, and unconditioned. I've found a nectar like dharma, whomever I teach it to will not understand, so I will stay silent here in the forest. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I'll read it one more time. Profound, peaceful, beyond constructs, luminous and unconditioned. I've found a nectar like dharma, Whomever I teach it to will not understand, so I will stay silent here in the forest. So the Buddha's first teaching was to say no. (laughs) So I think what we'll do is take a break, and then we'll get into that no. (laughs) Yeah?
1: Sound good? Right,
0: right, I'm all full of kiss, chocolate kisses. <laughs> I could not say no to those. <laughs> so, um, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'd like to leave some time just to discuss back and forth. I find that sometimes I even start like that, just with new groups, just to get to know each other. But anyways, so... Uh, getting back to kind of view meditation conduct, and just around these words of the Buddha, right this kind of this kind of no, which was a different kind of no and and this is the way I wanted to talk about view a little bit tonight we don 't have time to unpack it uh, a ton, but um, like I said, view in this context uh, means where we're where, what we 're getting used to what we're what we 're doing, what are we trying to uh, bring about in our life or what are we trying to have a deeper uh, understanding of, right? So in this sense, he, he, the Buddha uh, pre- presented the entire view of Buddhism, actually, within a, within a short statement. Um, and he, what he was doing was describing in words which is indescribable, so he was trying to describe what awakening is, right? And all he could use was these descriptors of being profound, right? Being peaceful, we'll come back to that word. Uh, being beyond constructs, which starts to get a little bit closer to what the experience of awakening actually is. Um, being luminous, right? It's not nothing, it's luminous. Uh, and being unconditioned. There's nothing that can create awakening. So this is a tricky thing, and there's a lot of debates among different schools on this too. Can, can uh, enlightenment... Uh, be created, right? Because we're talking about something that's beyond constructs. It's not conditioned, so can you create it? So it brings in some really interesting, I think, uh, uh, contemplations. And then the Buddha said, I've found a nectar like dharma, which was referring to the, the, the nectar of the fruition. He found the fruition of the dharma, right? Which has led to this sense of profoundness, peacefulness, beyond constructs, unconditioned, luminous, etc., and then his last statement is, basically, it's, it's not a no because he doesn't want to do it. He just doesn't think people are going to get it, right? It's, it's this experience that's beyond concepts. It's beyond constructs. It's not something you can buy. It's not something you can even create. Now, I want to say one thing there because it's a little controversial to say that. Some of you may be wondering what I mean by that. <laughs> so we have to, right now where we're at, our only choice is to sort of create something, right? Because we are stuck with uh, our conceptual mind. We're stuck with duality for the time being. So we have to do something, right? We engage in chanting. We engage in offerings. We engage in meditation. We engage in study. Um, But what the Buddha's saying is that is not the thing itself. That's merely the path to the thing, right? The thing itself is unconditioned. I often think of this as like... um, we kind of have no choice but to use better concepts to help reduce concepts that are causing overt suffering. So that's the start, right? And that has to do with the conduct. We're really watching, how do I behave? How am I using my body, speech, and mind? And I want to be, say one thing here that we often, at least I ignored for a lot of years, it also means towards ourself, right? So how is our speech and self-talk towards ourself, let alone our talk towards others? How do we relate to our bodies? Also, how do we relate to the bodies of others? And how do we relate to, to mind, right? Our mind and also the way others feel and think. So how do we use our body, speech and mind? So anyways, the Buddha, uh, whomever I teach it to will not understand so I will stay silent here in the forest. This is, you know, to me, one of the most profound things the Buddha actually taught, right? We have, you know, the Heart Sutra where he makes it more evident what what's he's describing here. Or w- at least a way uh, towards what he's describing. But really, here he's just saying, at the end of the day, we just need to do it. <laughs> and we need, to, we need to drop. We need to drop the confusion that we're having, right? So, to me, this is the biggest view. It's the, it's the underlying view that not only this being the nature of reality, the nature of when mind experiences. Itself and experiences his own nature or or experiences the emptiness of mind, is another way to put it. But at the same time, uh, it's really a descriptor of what we fundamentally are. And so how I normally talk about view is the view of Buddha nature, right? So some of you may be familiar with this term, Tathagatagarbha in Sanskrit. It basically means our potentiality uh, for awakening that we have the very seed for the thing we want. And if we didn't have the seed, we wouldn't be able to get it. So when we study Buddhist philosophy, you know, co- effect has to be in accordance with cause. You can't have something that's just random or out of nowhere. And so, again, just something food for thought. You've got to think on that a little bit, you know, contemplate on that. Is there, can there be some kind of effect that is unrelated to its cause? And so we take that logic and we apply it also to mind. We apply it to medita- meditative experience and the path. So so understanding this view of Buddha nature is also uh, an element of confidence. It's an element of appreciation. I was talking to someone about it the other day, and it's this notion that we're kind of connecting to an idea that we don't feel yet. So, necessarily, maybe some of you do, but I know I didn't for a lot of years. Like, sure, okay, yeah, um, I have this Buddha nature, but what does that mean? And, and I don't feel like I have Buddha nature. I feel like, you know, a lump of, you know, poop or whatever, right? You know, not every day, but some days. So it's, it's kind of this, again, this concept that we bring into our awareness. We can't really contemplate it so much, but I do think we can start to uh, uh, attune to it a bit more uh, through the practice of meditation, through the practice of awareness. That's what actually connects us with our Buddha nature. Um, in a way, I like to, to talk about Buddha nature in the sense that it's the teaching that we are, are originally okay, <laughs> you know, rather than the pervasive... Uh, drum of you are screwed up and you need to somehow improve. Now we have that in Buddhism too. It's part of the Hinayana view where we we, start to, we just understand, we understand part of our experience of how we experience self as full of kleshas, you know, full of these disturbing emotions or or aversion, craving, uh, ignorance, pride, jealousy, all these things. But the Buddha is saying that's not who you are, right? But it's happening, so we have to address it. Uh, with, with, you know, foundational conduct, foundational view. But really it's this getting used to this idea that this view that we are fundamentally pure. And purity here has, it can have a difficult um, translation into Western culture because sometimes we take the idea of purity meaning, I mean there is a definition of this in the dictionary, purity meaning um, like above something else, right? And then there is people and other things that are impure, but here, there's also a definition in the Western kind of lexicon, and it's very in line with the Buddhist definition of what purity is, or, or daknang we call it, is a, a purity being something that's not stained with, with anything. It's just completely clear, completely luminous. So when the Buddha described Buddhahood or enlightenment as luminous, that is the purity he's describing. Now... What, he's, what he didn't say but is implied in Buddha-nature teachings, like in Maitreya's teachings uh, on Buddha-nature and Asanga. Sangha, this luminosity is also part of our experience. It's not something foreign. It's just covered over right now. So Maitreya uses all of these examples, like the dross and gold. Uh, we can use the example of like a mirror that's been sort of covered over by something or by dust, but it didn't impede the mirror at all. The mirror is the mirror. The gold within the dross is still gold. It doesn't affect the gold. When you remove the dross and you connect with the gold, that's what it is. When you remove the covering on a mirror, you connect with the mirror. The mirror still has the potential to reflect, totally purely. (coughs) So there's a lot of examples like that we use to reflect on our own nature, our own mind. But it's tricky, because if we're having the perception, I'm this, you know poopy person, (laughs) for lack of a better word. I can't think of a better word. I'm this poor person, you know, with all these problems, with all these, you know, burdensome thoughts and blah, 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 right? And I'm not saying those problems aren't real. Some of them are real. You're dealing with them. We have to treat them as real. But they're also not true. And so by not seeing, by consistently opening into inquiry about that and then opening through the meditation of awareness, we start to connect with our Buddha nature. So it starts with a little bit of a doubt, right? So the view portion is just starting with a doubt. Maybe I'm not this screwed up person, right? Or maybe I'm not who I think I am. And then we start to explore other aspects. We start to remind ourselves of the open heart we have with our family members or those moments when we can just be generous spontaneously or any kind of moment where we really can connect with the beauty of our heart and see that. I know for me, I'm my biggest critic. So it's hard for me to remember the moments of of my heart and the beauty of my heart. And so in here we're noticing that, but not with a sense of pride, just with a sense of basic confidence that doesn't make us better or worse than anyone else. It just makes us alive, awake, connected, interconnected. So Buddha nature is, you know, ultimately when we talk about Buddha nature, it's not a thing. You know, we, we, Buddha nature can be synonymous sometimes with shunyata or emptiness. But it also has this quality that the Buddha described as luminous. It's not nothing, right? Nobody ever in Buddhist philosophy says uh, emptiness is nothing or Buddha nature is nothing. The problem is when we, we reify that, that, that Buddha nature, we start to mistake what is our own projection, what is our own appearance, for something else. We start to mistake other for something else than our own experience. And so, at this point, we not only need the view, but we need the meditation, right? So we're still within view, meditation, and conduct. Now, there's lots of different kinds of meditation. Like I said, within the foundational vehicles of Buddhism, uh, some people don't like the term Hinayana, but I'm basically just using it here to mean foundational, not lesser, right? Just foundational. That's all I mean. Um, and so uh, uh, we have the foundational perspectives of how to meditate. We're using the, like, let's say the uh, four foundations of mindfulness. Right. We're starting to gain some connection with not consistently only projecting our body experience, consistently only projecting our emotional tones or our thoughts or how the phenomenal world appears to us. So we start to see a little bit more of a unification we start to see in meditation a little bit more of what consists of our experience and we start to have a little bit more of a unification now it's a tricky thing to describe this because we're not looking for checking out here when it comes to meditation we're not looking for uh uh, what's the word peace is a tricky word here when the buddha used it because we might think of that as like calm, that does no problems, <laughs> that is uh, sort of like a little bit aloof, that kind of thing. But the Mahayana perspective says, no, 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 Don't, you can't have that, right? Why? Because we start to recognize more and more this sense of interconnectedness with all beings, with the world. We start to recognize more and more a sense of altruism, a sense of responsibility. And we start to influence our awareness that way. So the awareness practice I'll talk about and then we'll kind of do a really brief practice on it. It's just simply being present to everything that's arising. So sometimes we might use the breath as a practice of awareness, an object to sort of tie the awareness to, and we're writing that object in order to uh, accumulate a, more of a, a, a calm abiding. So there's a stability. It's a little bit like a glass of muddy water and we're just putting it down, right? And then over time, the mud will start to, the silt will start to fall to the bottom. Then we have the practice of Vipassana, right? Vipassana awareness, which is actually getting really interested in, okay, well, now I have this glass that's a little more clear. I'm starting to feel or connect with my Buddha nature a little bit more, but there's still all this crap in the bottom. (laughs) So we need Vipassana. We need Vipassana to have the insight to cut through the projection and illusion around that mud, right? So we're not going to talk about that so much tonight. But I really like just an awareness practice of simply resting in the body. Just allowing. Allowing experience to take place. We need a little bit of concentration for that. So this is a little bit different than a single point of concentration practice. If we think about it, single point of concentration, all it is there for is to grow a serviceable mind. That's it. To grow a serviceable mind so we can understand and have insight into what that mud really is. Mud meaning olive how we take self to be, how we take our emotions to be, how we take our thoughts to be, etc. But I like awareness practice of just simply, just resting. Just be in your body, be with sound, don't block anything. Just simply be awake, be aware. And this is not easy in the beginning. But over time, what happens, not only does the, the, the mud begin to settle, not only can we start to have some insight into... Uh, what that mud is and the nature of it experientially, because we start to see oh, okay, there's a little bit of an experience where we're, I'm taking this as self, but it's not feeling so much like self anymore. It's just feeling like something in my orbit. So it's not that it goes away. It's still there. Anger's still there for us, in the beginning at least. All these clashes are still there, but we start to shift our relationship with them, right? So <coughs> here meditation is the path that brings about a connection with our buddha nature because what is our buddha nature it's something that is not bound by constructs like the buddha said it's unconditioned it doesn't have this as much of a subject it doesn't have at all a subject object relationship with things it starts to transcend that but what does this look like what does this What's this experience like? Again, because tonight I I didn't want to go so much into philosophy. because we can talk about emptiness in a lot of different ways, but then we just sometimes end up in mental gymnastics. That has its place, right? Like I said, it has its place to then bring it into contemplation and then meditation. (coughs) But sometimes it's just very useful just to, like, drop in, not try to change or modify anything. Just drop in and be aware. So you guys interested in practicing that for a few minutes? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> so just connect to an open heart for a moment. We're just going to do a few minutes because I want to discuss a little bit together. You can close your eyes or leave them open. Um, if you're going to close them, I recommend leaving them open a little bit. So, so just because the whole idea here is we're not going to block our senses, it's different than single point of concentration. And I just want you to try to be. Don't do anything. Don't try to meditate. Don't try to construct an experience. Don't try to run from what you're feeling right now. Just be with what's ever arising. So we need a quality of awareness that turns toward our experience, be it a sound, a sight, a feeling in the body, an emotion in the body, You're not focusing on it, you're simply just being aware. And really there's only a few rules here. (coughs) Try not to move, try to just stay for a few moments. And don't try to change that experience. Don't try to have insight into it or try to figure it out. Don't analyze it. Just be aware of it. And if it's hard for you, just place your awareness on sound. Just be aware of sound. Be aware of body. That's it. Drop your expectations. If you can, let your awareness become more and more vast in the sense that you just open to all of your experience. Thoughts are allowed to arise, they're allowed to abide, and they're allowed to cease. Smells, tastes, sensations, sound, everything's allowed. There's a great Zen master, Suzuki Roshi, who you, some of you may know of. He has this great quote, when we meditate we leave all of our windows and doors open. We don't block anything. So anything can really come inside, but we don't serve them tea. So let thoughts arise, let them pass, but be aware. Let sound come and go. Let body sensation come and go. Try to meet your experience like a baby or a young kid looking at a painting for the first time fresh Okay, so this is a really simple practice. It's one of my main practices. It kind of straddles the shamatha vipassana world. Sometimes you'll be in shamatha, sometimes you'll end up in a vipassana practice. You might start to have some insight into something you might notice, a sense of this reifiedness of who you are and mine and me start to loosen a little bit, right? Or you might just settle the mind through shamatha, and that's totally fine too. Either way, you're going to start to sense, if you haven't already, more and more of this quality of your Buddha nature, which is really nothing whatsoever, but it has this quality of knowing, it has this quality of being alive, being awake, being aware. And it's not that, I don't don't think it's that hard actually to get a taste of this. Even when we do some shamatha, where we're just doing calm abiding practice with the breath or something, when thoughts settle, that's a sign that we have Buddha nature, meaning if the thoughts didn't settle, it would mean they were an inherent or innate part of our nature, but they're not. And I'm not saying thoughts in general as a phenomena. I mean the thoughts of how we identify with ourselves or how we identify with the phenomena. When those loosen a little bit, we start to see, oh, there's a little gap, right? So to me, these are really precious things to start paying attention to. I'm not saying new things, I think, to a lot of you. I'm just kind of angling a little bit differently to start to see how can we appreciate these moments how can just as many moments as we think, you know, and again, this may be me and all of my, uh, you know, Jewish guilt and all that, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, those moments of where we just think I'm this bad person and I've done this and I've done that and blah, 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 right? So as, as, at least we should be equally connecting with that I'm inherently, innately okay. I innately have Buddha nature as much as we connect with I'm this screwed up person. I want you to do that. At least 50-50. Does that sound good? (laughs) And and, and, and in the beginning here, we are kind of, the idea that we have Buddha nature is still an illusion. It's still a concept, but it's a very, very healthy concept because it's in line with reality. It's in line with how things actually are from a Buddhist perspective. So with that, that's kind of the basic conduct we can start engaging in. Again, conduct, just like view and meditation, it's a lot of facets, right? I'm not presenting a huge breath on it. But the conduct can be really simple, which is how are you integrating the view we talked about of Buddha nature, this view of the Buddha describing his awakened state, how are we integrating that with this awareness meditation throughout the day and into our life? And that's the conduct, right? Because when we have awareness, we know acutely, we know what's causing, we start to, and we have to learn a little bit, like negative karma, positive karma, that kind of thing, it's very helpful. But we know, I think we know when something went wrong. We know when when we, when, we, when we hurt someone, yeah? If we have awareness. When we drop the awareness, oh, you can become, you know, anybody, actually. <laughs> so awareness is the key. Because I know for me, it's sort of like ethics are something we take on uh, conduct, is, conduct is related to ethics, to Buddhist ethics. It's something initially we do have to take on. We do it kind of artificially. We take on vows. We, we decide I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do this. And this is really helpful to work with our confusion. But eventually, when we connect more with our nature, we just start to see more and more what's in alignment and non-alignment. We start to see, okay, that didn't feel so good, right? And we start to question why. So, this is where I'm getting into a little bit of uh, uh, territory of, can conduct also be an inquiry-based practice? Because the Buddhist path, it's essentially the way I've been trying to describe it tonight, it's a path of inquiry. It's not a set of beliefs, though there are beliefs involved, but those, the point of those beliefs are to go beyond the beliefs. It's the only tradition I know that does that. Most, most things they want you to believe, to believe. Buddhism just gives you temporary beliefs, like Buddha nature. It's a belief for us right now, let's be honest, right? But the belief itself is a temporary one to help you go beyond the belief completely. That's what he meant by beyond constructs, right? Beliefs is part of constructs. So integrating this, we need some help. We need some basic structures. We need to try to work to limit and reduce and eliminate the ten non-virtues in our life. You know, not harming people through our body, not harming people through our speech or our mind. But while we're doing that, you can also make it a very beautiful inquiry-based practice. For me, my first three years as a monk were really hard because I treated it very dogmatically. Like, these are rules and I can't break them. And then I started to realize, no, this is a practice for me. Sure, there are rules, and if you break one thing, you're not a monk anymore. (laughs) <laughs> a few things, <laughs> so, but they're also a boundary. They're a way to work with one's mind. And so it started to become like a laboratory for me rather than a prison. Uh, it started to become a space where I could start to understand, okay, this feels good and this doesn't feel good. So that's helpful. That's why we take vows. That's why we avoid things like the ten non-virtues in our conduct because they give us some clue. Ah, okay, that's not working so well anymore. But what does it also do? What's the underlying thing? Is it just to keep the vow and to be a good Buddhist? No. Awareness. So this is what Buddhist mindfulness looks like. The more we watch our conduct, the more awareness we cultivate, the more mindfulness we cultivate. I know for me, it's the single most thing that helps me with my mindful awareness. It's not just, I mean, I taught you this practice now, but that practice is a means to help us also come into more sane, more healthy, more interdependent, interconnected, uh, 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 conduct with others and with ourself. Mm. So I think when we treat it like that, to me, it feels so rich. It feels so loving. I mean, even just talking about it now, I feel really like chills and it fills my heart because it's this idea that like, I'm not the most important person in the world, <laughs> you know, contrary to what I normally believe. <laughs> and at the same time, um, a deep recognition of, like when, of how when I harm another, even in a subtle way, like being a little bit aggressive with someone or something, it's harming me. So it just circles right back and forth. And these are principles that I think, yes, we can make some uh, constructs around them and beliefs and, and kind of religious ideas and vows. These are just fundamental to, to existence. So the Buddha was incredibly kind to do this for us because it helps to give us a clue. It helps to give us some way in the door. So just to wrap up, and then I want to hear from you all, is, um, you know, view meditation and conduct, we're really doing them together, right? We're consistently reflecting on this view. We're bringing it into action through meditation. Or sorry, we're, we're getting used to it through meditation. And then through conduct, we're integrating, right? There's a few things I wrote down to see if I forgot uh, what to say. Hmm... So, another way to think of conduct here is integrating a recognition and awareness of our Buddha nature into life, right? That's what I've been describing, just to kind of sum it up. So anyways, that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe we can turn the lights on. Yeah. Like, what, like turn these big ones on. These, well,
2: that's quick. Can we put that one on? Because
0: they're it's Yeah, right there, that. perfect. Yeah, that's good, yeah. Now I can see your beautiful faces. <laughs> so what do you got? We got a few minutes to chat. Any questions or just anything you want to discuss more?
1: Yeah. Um,
2: well, I don't know, but it's, I just, what I, what I kept thinking about when you were saying that integrating um, is when I first came to Buddhism and I first came to the center that was elsewhere, um, I was going through a really traumatic time in my life, so I was completely open to what I was hearing, and I found that I just integrated it immediately. It just, it just was. I was just so open to it, and I, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but as the years have gone by, less trauma, things are groovy, and um, but but it's been integrated. So sometimes I get frustrated. I feel like, oh, I'm not. I'm not learning, I'm not learning, you know, all those things. But I think, depending on each person's life, it can be integrated like that, or it can take a long time. Yeah. It's just a, a thought.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> not a question. <laughs> you use the term, we're top down culture. What does that mean? Well, I mean, it's also up for, it's an opinion. So it's up for meaning, maybe it's not capital T Truth, but um, it means um, like a a head approach to the world. So I'll I'll go into a little bit more detail. It's hard because when you're in a top-down conditioning, you don't know you're in a top-down. It's like sort of like you're in the water, but you don't know you're in the water, right? (laughs) Then when you start to get out of the water, you start to see the difference. So what it means is primarily seeing and relating to the world through thought and analysis. And so... um, I know for me, this has been a big struggle. It's been something I've been conditioned by. And what I've noticed, especially in Buddhism, is that's the way we'll also see Buddhism, when actually a lot of Buddhism is talking about more than just thoughts and concepts. So it's, it's a tricky thing, yeah. It's what I'm, I'm an activist against that, but not through making Facebook posts, but through this, you know? <laughs> Does that makes sense? So bottom-up would mean some cultures uh, don't need to use the thinking mind as much. We, we all need the thinking mind. I mean, it's not like you don't need it. It's useful. But when we're 90, 80%, 90% of the thinking mind, there's a whole part of ourselves we're just cut off from, which is the world of feeling, which is the world of emotion, which is the world of non-conceptual knowing through feeling. So feeling has, this isn't a Buddhist principle now, but at least I haven't read it in any text. Feeling does have a type of knowing, and uh, other cultures can be more, more or less connected into that, and we can too. It's just sort of a conditioning where we can shift the process to more body awareness that develops a, 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 a knowing in the body. Like Are
2: you talking about intuition?
0: It's not quite intuition. Uh, intuition is a component of it. It's more a quality of, hmm, okay, we could just say this. Even just through the mind, we don't have to talk about the body. So in Buddhism, we could really put the mind into four categories. Thinking, knowing, awareness, and clarity. Clarity being the the root of the relative mind. Talking relative truth here. And so knowing is a quality that we can naturally do do where we can do it without thinking. Like when we see a flower or for instance when you see this microphone, you don't have to think, it's a microphone. You just know it, right? So there's a quality of the backdrop of mind. It's connected to this term luminosity or luminous in what the Buddha said. It has this connection where we can just know. And then, of course, we can be aware of that and et cetera. And so it's more like that. But there's a type of felt knowing where we don't have to use the thinking mind all the time. Right. And so I think uh, indigenous cultures typically have a bit more of a balance here. And we're all indigenous to somewhere, so we've had it at some point. It's just when you condition, when education system becomes about uh, th- primarily Dealing with the world through thinking, we lose a connection to that, and therefore we also lose a connection to a lot of healthy emotions and and, and healthy base of what it's like to be in the body. Yeah.
2: So, but what you're saying uh, about knowing is, um, I'm trying to understand this, what you're saying. Um, is obviously not, you know, because in Buddhism we're we're trying to deconstruct that knowing. Oh, it's a lamp. It's you know that the whole mm-hmm. thing but you're talking more about maybe are you talking about knowing the buddha nature like it's you know it's like it's a knowing if we remove
0: the other stuff yeah i mean buddha nature has its own knowing capacity of knowing uh more the that would be the the knowing of wisdom so it's a it's a completely non-conceptual knowing that's happening that's a little different i'm just in the relative truth of like yeah yeah, uh, i'm in the relative truth of just i'll give you an example so you know for me, sometimes now, because I practice this a lot—not uh, always—but when I'm kind of connected, I don't. I can just choose not to be in my thinking mind. It doesn't mean thoughts aren't going; they're going. It's no. Actually, thoughts aren't a problem. I mean, Naropa has the famous quote, or Talopa to Naropa. He said, uh, "Son, it's not thoughts that bind you; it's it's clinging that binds you." Right. So often in Buddhism, we go against the wrong enemy, which is the thoughts. <laughs> thoughts are not the problem at all. Actually, what happens when we do that? We kind of end up usually kind of doing what's called, they call it stupid meditation in Tibetan, (laughs) where we just kind of zone out and we're just blank. That's not what medit, you know, you all know, that's not what we're trying to do here. But um, so it's a quality where like I can just, you know, we can choose. Like some moments I'm waiting for the subway and I'm just like, well, I don't need to think right now, so I can just feel, Mm -hmm. right? And so feeling is a type of knowing too. We can know the feeling of our feet touching the ground. We can know the feeling of a sensation moving. We can know the sound of a train coming by. And we don't have to think. My teacher, one of my teachers says, or I say it this way, but he said it a different way. We think we we think we think need to think more than we need to think. <laughs> like that's the way I would put it. So it's like this framing or this, it's really just a habit when we look at it. It's this habit that, oh, I'm bored, there's nothing going on, so I'm going to think. So the, the, the mind is just conditioned towards that, which we can see is creating a lot of the Disease and and you know disturbance for a lot of us because it it definitely raises the energy the prana in the subtle body, and it triggers more anxiety, uh, more depression, more self. Actually, in my opinion, so yeah. So I'm a big fan of learning. You know, I teach somatic. We didn't do it tonight, but I teach somatic practices for just going more and more into the body because we just need that so much. It really changed my life yeah, doing this. Yeah. Sorry, it was your question. <laughs> is it answered No? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, in the back? Um, do you think that the thinking aspect
1: is more related to linear as opposed to nonlinear, which is more feeling? Yeah, I think so.
0: I think so, yeah. Seems like that. Yeah, and I think this is where the Buddhist path has a real benefit, just even on a um, like a relative level, because it feeds um, an inquiry practice. Because again, like a lot of what we're taking in through listening tonight, I invited you into an inquiry, right? I I think I did. (laughs) I hope I said that. And to me, that's the most the power of the Buddhist path. Sometimes it's tricky because like we start and we're we're really suffering, and we just trade one belief for another belief, and then hopefully through the power of the Dharma, maybe eventually we, we uh, something cracks, and then we have to also drop the Buddhist beliefs. You see what I'm saying? So it's a little controversial to say that. I like being a little provocative, but I think you know what I mean. And, and, and it's sort of like, uh, uh, this is a big one because I get a lot of questions from people around like karma and rebirth and stuff. And a lot of people are like, ah, you know, I don't believe in that. And I'm like, well, so who cares? Like, good for you. Like, so what? I mean, does that, is that going to stop you from meditating? It shouldn't because the whole idea is it's an inquiry-based thing. No one's saying anybody has to believe in rebirth or reincarnation uh, or, or um, karma uh, actually, understanding karma is a really difficult thing. It's a very vast topic. Actually, it's much easier to, 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 for a teacher, at least that's my experience, to teach emptiness than to teach on karma. It's much harder, actually. It's an extremely hidden phenomena, and it's, it usually gets dumbed down. Where actually karma is everything. Our entire experience right now from a Buddhist perspective is just cause and effect happening. Moving, changing, and it's influenced by the past moment and the moments before. it. That's all it is. But anyways, so we have to do some inquiry into that. Otherwise, if it, like, I think part of my, uh, I don't regret it because it, it helps. It's like we each get our own doorway where we go in and then we work with that, you know, we shift over time. But I kind of became a believer too quickly in Buddhism. It was like, ah, oh, yes, I found something. And that was useful, but then I had to go through a lot of suffering of cracking through my own dogmatic responses to that. And eventually, I think, I think it, you know, I, I don't regret any of it. I think it was the right kind of pathway for me. But it's sort of like that. It's sort of uh, it's, a, it's painful in that way because the ego just wants to keep hanging on and hanging on and hanging on. And the dharma just keeps pointing to, like, let it go, let it go, let it go. But just saying let it go doesn't work. <laughs> we, we have to do it. And that's the painful part because the rug is constantly shifting from under us until we realize, I don't need the damn rug anymore, right? But anyways, I think I went too much. (laughs) I often do that. Um, Can you talk a little bit about where thoughts are coming from? (laughs) And also, are there any Buddha thoughts? Buddha thoughts. Yeah, that's a good question um hmm. i'll say this for you and for other people in the room if they if you want to kind of uh experiment with this look at the mind and look where thoughts are they coming where are they coming from where are they abiding and where do they go so i'll use it more as a question for you as a practice Of course, there's a philosophical idea of where thoughts are arising from, but it's more interesting to do that. (laughs) So check. Do they arise? Where do they arise from? And so you can do it as a practice of awareness, turning the awareness towards the mind and just looking. Oh, where are they coming from? Where do they go? Right, That kind of thing. As far as Buddha thoughts there's some talk like in the in the galuk tradition they don't talk about this as far as i know but in some other traditions they'll call it seeming thoughts an enlightened person can have so it's not like um they're not thoughts in the sense of concepts for an enlightened being supposedly they're not like a, they're not actively thinking but they have they know right so i don't know if we'd call that thoughts but there's a knowing capacity so that's kind of one of the powers of an enlightened being, is they have a full knowing capacity that can act and be very accurate without having to analyze the situation. But I've heard some other teachers say there can be thoughts, but I'm not sure because I might be mixing it up on levels of the path, because some beings can gain a full recognition of emptiness, but they're not a Buddha yet, but they're still seeming thoughts. And they're not attaching to those thoughts, but they could also use their thoughts like in a positive way. So that's a good question. I, I don't have a 100% answer for you. But it seems to me that what I first said, that seems a little bit more probable, that there's a knowing coming from the, the wisdom of the Dharmakaya, and that's all you really need, right? It gets a little bit at this, I've been thinking, this is totally my conjecture now, so don't take it as anything scriptural or, or uh, uh, what do you call it, definitive. Um, this idea of like working more with the knowing as as sort of, body-based knowing, empathy knowing, uh, intuitive knowing, less thinking knowing, it kind of gives me more the idea of like, oh yeah, that must, there's a Buddha nature knowing too. We don't have to be a Buddha to connect with that. We can connect a little bit with that, like pieces of it. It's just not sustained for us over long periods of time. That takes practice. And so it kind of gives me the clue that, oh, there is a kind of, it gives me confidence. There's a kind of knowing and then a and then, a, a, of course, a compassionate action that can come from that knowing. That's not a thought. Is that uh,
2: the same as omniscience?
0: Not in my case, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, when it's fully realized, when it's fully brought to fruition, yeah, it's one of the factors of omniscience. Because you have omniscience as knowing the nature of all phenomena and then knowing like, their, their specificities. So yeah, that second one, I think, would be more in that category. Which kind of breaks it, that alone, just thinking about it, I love to think about those things because it breaks my concept, concepts just right there. Because it's like, wow, how could you know everything simultaneously? Because for us, it seems like you have to think about it and put it in categories and you know, Google it and like, all that kind of stuff. For a Buddha, it's just instant and it's happening all the time. So it starts to give you a clue into what the nature of reality actually is. A lot of these things in Buddha Dharma, they're pointing us towards the nature of reality again and again and again. And not that that nature of reality is a—it's a, not a void. So it's also—it's no, it not a void. It's not nothing. It's full, right? It's just not full of poop. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my I'm
2: going there tonight. I, have a question about that. So I always have a hard time with the, this concept of a human being to be a Buddha like we we, we're you know we're told that the Dal you know like a Tibetan see the Dalai Lama as a Buddha or see the Lama as a Buddha and I I kind of get it in a sort of a knowing way but but when I think of a Buddha I think of omniscience and, and I think of omniscience as a body free thing like there's no body in omniscience like it's so limiting the body and the brain how can a human how can a Buddha
1: come as a human? I just, I don't know. It's really hard to <laughs> wrap my mind around
0: that. I think it's good you're thinking about that. Um, keep thinking about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would say, connect with this pra- Like connect with your practice more around awareness, and try to have a taste of your Buddha nature. It's just a small piece. You know, I'm not, I'm not making out to be some big thing. Just a small piece of like a gap in between solidity of who we think we are and and how we're relating to our life and world but yet things are still there it's not that emptiness and happens and then there's nothing there it doesn't block anything right so we have to start to connect with that a little bit more in practice Mm -hmm. and then these kind of things it's not like they get answered but they you have a little bit more insight into it like that but i mean uh, philosophically you know we have the three bodies of a buddha and so these three bodies, you know, dharmakaya, sambhogakaya, and nirmanakaya, sometimes we talk about four or five, but basically there's those three categories, mind, uh, subtle body, and then more grosser body. Yeah. Dharmakaya is just expressive all the time. It's, it's just there. It's, it's the nature of reality itself. It's the nature of that enlightened being's mind. Um, all enlightened beings' mind. But yet, uh, uh, in order to benefit others, it manifests. In different ways And so then you have Subtler ways it manifests In some Bogakaya forms And then more grosser ways In Nirmanakaya, Which could be a human body Could be uh, You know An animal body Could be a God body Could be um, a, An iPhone Could be a lot of things mm-hmm. Nirmanakaya emanations Actually One way we describe this world This world Is a Nirmanakaya emanation So we This is real Vajjana stuff now yeah. But um, But it's so, so it's just kind of we have to get out of our concepts part of this is conditioning of materialism because we're again let alone the top-down approach we're very conditioned into a hyper materialism a lot of us and so these things don't make sense because they're because we're like we think of things as solid and material so we have to reflect on that a lot and then it becomes more open and more possible but as far as from my own experience i don't know i mean i'm just relating to it as a things I've thought about and heard from my teachers and, and studied. So um, my own experience is that, uh, honestly, like, uh, I mean, there's the practice of Guru Devotion and Guru Yoga, which is one thing where you're, you're actively practicing look, looking at someone with pure view. Yeah. It doesn't mean that person's a Buddha. It just means you're practicing pure view. That's the difference. Can they be? Definitely. Sure, why not? Not just the Dalai Lama and, and, and other teachers... Even like, sorry, i got to be careful here. (laughs) Let's pick someone else. (laughs) Even Mike Pence could be a Buddha. You don't know. You really don't know. I mean, I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I thought about that stuff. Yeah, But also sometimes we have to remember some things are training for the mind and then some things are, we don't know the actuality right now. And then, so we have to be careful because when we're training the mind, we're training the mind. It doesn't mean that's how it is. We're just training our mind. Right? right? So, it's I think sometimes we get mixed up that. in that. Sorry, what?
2: It's good to come back to that all the time. We're training our mind.
0: Exactly, it's yeah.
2: holding on to the concepts of, is it all in all but Exactly.
0: <laughs> Otherwise, we become like fundamentalist Christians, basically. <laughs> you know? Seriously. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's kind of this, this delicate thing, because we have to remember, Buddhism is always pointing at the nature of reality it's always pointing at like what is going to liberate us from dukkha completely and then so that's the practice and a lot of it is like um, just to bring it to something practical now based on your question a lot of it's just like it's loosening us up I found the more rigid I get usually the further away I am from results in my practice where if there's more fluidity and openness happening and I don't mean openness like whatever man like that kind of openness (laughs) openness with compassion openness with some insight that's a good sign. Yeah. You know, it ebbs and flows for a lot of us. But when it's getting more and more rigid, I don't know. I don't know if it's going the right direction. I can't speak for anyone else. For me, I know it's not. Right. Yeah. Maybe one more. You all okay? Was there in the back yet? Something? Yeah. You were a monk for a Yeah. Why you move on Oh, because <laughs> a female goat ate my robes. <laughs> I'm joking. No, that was <laughs> <laughs> one of my teachers, uh, Tukusanak Rimshe, who's a wonderful Lama who's in Santa Fe, Pamakondraling. He, um, he, uh, he showed up one time at a Shechen a monastery, which was his monastery. And, um, you know, the monks, they have uh, a Chogu, which is the yellow robe they wear during Sojong, and it was a Sojong day. And he just came in his normal robes, just the red, and he didn't have the yellow. And Robjam Rimshe, who's the head of the monastery, said, Where's your chugu? Where's your you know, monk robe? And he said, oh, a female goat ate it. <laughs> and all the monks laughed because they knew what that meant. Yeah. Um, anyways, um, <laughs> I like that story because just, just, sometimes we get so uptight about these things and Tibetans, they can laugh about it a little bit. Not to say it's like good to disrobe. No, it's good if you can stay a monk. But also we can have some humor in our human experience, right? So anyways, um, me personally, um, there's a lot of different things. Um, let's see. I mean, just to put it uh, briefly, I'm gonna talk about this tomorrow night, I guess. They asked me to talk about becoming a monk, being a monk and leaving, I guess. I don't know what to say, but, so this will be a preview. Um, uh, I, love, I loved it. Like, to me, being a monk uh, was, uh, I just wanna preface it with this. It's like it's very much like being married. Like it becomes your partner. It becomes something you're working with. You're going through ups and downs on a daily, weekly basis, just like we all do with our life. So it becomes kind of a container, not just for your dharma practice, but a container for you as a human being. At least that's how I experienced it. And um, and so it was like a it was a partner, a lover. A, a, you know, a, a great benefit to my life and my dharma practice. So. Um, and at some point, it, it started to feel incongruous. Like the the relationship was, there were some problems. <laughs> we weren't communicating as well anymore. We were having arguments, that kind of thing. And the arguments were with, obviously, self with self, meaning I'm sort of working it out with myself. And I think a lot of that had to do around isolation. Um, I wasn't living in monastic communities, which I, would t- I tell most new monastics now, don't live alone, live in a monastic community. Um, and so that's... That, if I have any regrets, it's kind of one of, the, one of those. I wish I did spend more time in a community, but also I wouldn't have been able to do as much retreat as I did. I spent more time in retreat. So that was cool too. And uh, so it's a combination of that, a uh, combination of just being a young man. You know, I was 28 when I started, 37 when, when I left. Or was I younger? 36, I can't remember. Anyways. Um, and so part of just, you know, wanting... a a relationship wanting a life you know in that way and uh partly just uh i think the the core of it was also just um it was a useful path for me and then it kind of was ready to move my path more into a householder connection with the dharma so in in it depends on who you ask um the way i view it now is um we choose householder. As a householder, we also have commitments and vows. We have Pradimoksha vows. So we have training that we're engaging in. And we can choose that. And to choose that route of working with the Dharma, we can choose a, a monastic route. Um, I don't think they're equal for every one person, meaning like, you know, there it depends on us and what we need. And so I think I just needed to change. And as a teacher, I wanted to relate a bit more to people on a, um, just like, not like not a different level like not being in in a different lifestyle and yeah and it's always hard to to see like what was the right decision you know because uh, incredibly beneficial path I mean if if it's right for someone it's incredibly helpful It's basically like the real benefit is you get to practice you get to do Dharma full-time you get to study and have opportunities that most of us householders do not and you also strip away a lot of the the distractions to practice but It depends how you want to practice. Vajrayana Buddhism is a very beautiful uh, uh, yana, a very beautiful vehicle of Buddhism. Because whatever your life, you can do it. It's more challenging in certain ways. But, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's kind of... um, It's like a combination of those, yeah.
1: (laughs) But
2: I
0: I don't know. Reflecting now, it's kind of... feels good. I don't know. I think think it, it felt complete like okay I did that and then I just continue my path how it is now I mean I think just to wrap up tonight uh, whether we're beginners on the Buddhist path or or we've been doing this for a long time um, we really we really need a thirst for awakening and we really need to study and contemplate and meditate on what that is I presented like a probably a pretty sloppy way of talking about awakening tonight, but either way, I hope there's a little bit of insight, and I just encourage you, you know, for those of you who are still wondering what what the Buddhist path, what awakening means, um, keep going, keep reflecting on that, keep inquiring into that, to grow that thirst. I mean, the thirst really starts, I was going to talk about this tonight, but it went in a different direction. The thirst starts with the first noble truth, really, really. We can study all the highfalutin Tibetan Buddhist the Manimaka, Tantra, uh, Tara, Sadhana, whatever. And those are all wonderful and beautiful ways of engaging the Dharma. But if we don't sit with suffering and chew on Dukkha enough, we won't gain a thirst for awakening. I mean, this is embedded in the Lam Rim, too. The whole beginning of the Lam Rim is all about chewing on Dukkha and the nature of what Dukkha is. You know, being dissatisfaction, suffering, and all its elements, and its gross perversion and its subtleties. Just the very subtlety. Some of you really wanna get up right now, right? I mean, you know, it hurts after sitting for a while. This is dukkha, right? So it's just the nature of our experience. So we have to get some taste wanting awakening through understanding what our predicament is now. Really important. So for me, that's the foundational thing of like, whatever we're doing, grow that thirst of awakening and then of course in a mayana path we're growing that and then recognizing that in connection with others because awakening is this this factor that that of course the first way we talk about it is is eliminating dukkha going beyond the dukkha so to me that's kind of the essence i feel that's using our perfect human rebirth well if we can just Thirst for awakening as much as possible. It's going to be easy to practice. I think for me that when it gets hard to practice and when I get slack and I get lazy and I don't want to meditate, like, you know, whatever, <laughs> it's because I'm not, I'm not thirsting awakening in that moment. right? So it's kind of we have to meditate enough and contemplate enough and study enough to get fed up with suffering. But in that case, we really have to understand the predicament. It's a, even dukkha, it's a very profound teaching The First Noble Truth, knowing dukkha Because suffering is not an easy thing to understand From the Buddhist perspective Meaning when it gets subtle Because it's not just talking about like Oh, I got sick Or my day didn't go right No, no, no It's talking about that very fact That my mind would rather watch Netflix than meditate That's dukkha Right? And again, no judgment You know, we're all, we're all trying our best but so we don't beat ourselves for that. What we do is we check, we inquire. Hmm, poor guy. <laughs> That's how I talked about <laughs> it. Poor guy. Oh, you want to watch Netflix? Okay, okay. But it, but but then awareness. Watch how your mind is with Netflix. Does it really make you happy? Or does it just keep me up till midnight and then I can't sleep? <laughs> right? I mean, anyways. So maybe we'll stop here. I went over time a little bit. <laughs> maybe we'll dedicate the merit. So, I'm on page 99. Can we, we have some names. That we oh, yeah, great. Actually, Netflix we has that. The Life of the Buddha. Does it? Yes. So, you can, you can get awakened watching The Life of the Buddha. <laughs>
1: cool. Nobody wrote down
2: names to September. Except for what? September. Oh. We have names for August, which we could do that. Do August. Okay. So um, I'll read out the names that we of the people and animals that we're going to dedicate tonight's teaching for, um, and I'll stop at the end of each list, and if you have a name of somebody, you can just speak it or think it. So, um, so for people with obstacles, Caroline, Allison, Raymond Fink, Diane and Claudia,
1: <laughs>
2: Justin Bailey, <laughs> Rudabay Bay Allen, <laughs> Cheyenne Tierra, Raquel, <laughs> Trevor, Cardia Samu, Jenny L, Doctors Without Borders, Jana Bailey, Jeff Collins, Kelly, Taram Atman, Lauren, Sean, Sue Rabi. And uh, those people from the hurricane? People from? The hurricane who hmm. are having obstacles to their well-being. And then um, the people with illness. Robin Edwards, Leslie Jones, Robin Carlson, Ann Lewicki, Cheyenne Tierra, Jen Hull, Rhonda, Nancy, Kate Nielsen, Zeus, Diane, <coughs> Katie Johan, Russ, Yeshi the dog, Sandy Tatum, Ben Demen. Stella, Jane Kearns, Diane Liljmin, Alice, Danielle Franken, Mary Sue, Taran Ben Demon People who have recently died Elizabeth Oram Roy Whiteman Ernestine Romero Jesse Suacido Johnny Clegg Tony Morrison El Paso Victims Dayton Victims Virginia Bodner El Paso Shooters Richard, creatures f- in the Amazon fire. Um, animals killed in recent flood in Kauai. Patrick Larkin. Mm. That one, like Yoti? Know. Right. Sure. Yeah, I think he was. the last name <sighs> I thought oh, Patrick, Patrick Rockin, yeah. About the divers on the uh, ship that caught fire off the coast of California. Yeah.
1: To some blind or. And again, the hurricane victims who have died. Okay.
0: Maybe we save a few monies. O mani, we just okay. usually dedicate. Yeah.
2: We usually
0: we have a set of things us, but we can do manis. Yeah, let's do a few manis. Okay. So we'll say Omani Pemehong, the, mm. the mantra of the Buddha of compassion, uh, as a way to
1: accumulate merit that we'll dedicate to
0: them. Yeah.
1: Omani okay. Pemehong, Omani pe Om mani pemem hum Om mani pemem hum Om mani pemem hum mani Om Mani Pamehung Om Mani So 99
0: is okay, is that where you usually dedicate? Or English? Uh, English. Okay. <laughs> Due to the merits of these virtuous actions, may quickly attain the state of a Guru Buddha and lead all living beings without exception into that enlightened state. May the supreme jewel, Bodhicitta, that has not arisen, arise and grow. And may that which has not arisen not diminish but increase more and more. Just, no? Then we go. Then we
2: generally do long life prayers for Holiness and Lama Sopa on page 244. Short long life prayers, and we do the very as well.
0: In the land encircled by snow mountains, you are the source of all happiness and good. All powerful Chenrezig Tenzin Gyasu, please remain until samsara ends. You who uphold the subduer's moral way, who serve as the bountiful bearer of all, sustaining, preserving, and spreading the Manjana's victorious doctrine, who masterly accomplished magnificent prayers honoring the three jewels. Savior of myself and others, your disciples, please, please live long.
2: May our Venable Lama's lives be firm, their five divine actions spread in the ten directions. And the torch of Lo Song's teachings, dispelling the darkness of the three worlds, beings all remain. In all future lives, may we never be parted from the perfect lawless and pure ways of the Dharma. May we gain every experience of the path and stages, quickly attain bodhicitta. Thank,
0: Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, Thank
2: you.
0: that was fun. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh,